Well, like I said, turn to Matthew chapter 5, um, verses 31 through all the way through 37. Um, I don't know if I have all those verses on the slides. That's my mistake. But um, we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, 31 through 37. As you're turning there, I wonder if you have a friend like this. Um, Sally and I have a good friend, just an incredibly charismatic person, um, amazing to be with anytime we're in this person's presence. Uh, we have a blast. This person's encouraging, um, fun, full of excitement. I mean, it's just, we love being with this person, but, um, but we never know when it's going to end or if it's going to happen and, until it's happening. You know, it's like when they're with us, it's great, but then it could change in, in a moment. And they uh, have some other commitment that we didn't know about that they have to rush off to. And so we've just kind of learned to um, just kind of enjoy the time we have with them while they're with us, but know that they're juggling so many commitments and so many relationships and so many people that um, it just could change and they might be gone. And so we just, okay, well, we, it was fun. It was fun while it lasted. And I, don't, I think we're not unique. I think um, a lot of us have friends like that, or maybe, you know, maybe you're like that. Um, and I think it's kind of becoming more and more acceptable culturally to not expect people to stick with their commitments, right? I mean, it's, it's fundamentally restrictive on a person's pursuit of their own happiness and their own sense of identity if we expect them to follow through and to stick with the commitments they've made and the people that they've made those commitments too, we kind of see that as that's not really fair to someone. They couldn't have known these things would come up and they'd be so unhappy. And, and so now, uh, of course, they need to break those commitments because they've got to they've got to seek what makes them happy. Right. And that seems to be increasingly just kind of the ethos that we have culturally, it, that sort of the idea that you should have to suffer to stick with what you said you were going to do um, is is sort of like a modern day heresy. Right. And as we've been looking in the Gospel of Matthew, um, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, we've been thinking about what it means to follow Jesus and to be a disciple. And um, I've used the term apprentice um, to explain that a good bit, and I just I keep wanting to hit this, that to be a disciple is not just to be a learner, someone who gets information, but learns a way of life. So it takes the teaching of Jesus and begins to imitate Jesus, and then to participate in the things that Jesus is doing in the world. That's what it means to be a disciple. And so we've talked about these kind of three aspects of that, that to be a disciple means to, well, first of all, to come to Jesus and to be with Jesus, and then to develop the character of Jesus, and then to join Jesus in the works that he is doing. And so as we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount, um, we've heard Jesus talk about this community that he is forming um, that a, is a new kingdom, and it's really upside down. It's the reverse of the way the kingdoms of this world naturally work. And he begins by announcing the blessing of his kingdom. Um, and, and he says very surprising things about who is blessed under his rule. And, um, and he says it's the, it's the people that are like poor in spirit, right? Not the sort of people that the world expects to be happy and to be the blessed ones. Jesus says, these are the people who have the blessing of my kingdom. And this is good news. Um, and then uh, after he goes through a number of different types of people and that, that have a certain characteristic, he basically calls this community to embody a unique witness in the world, to live as salt and light and to, um, to shine in a way that reflects the kingdom of God in a dark world. 
And then Jesus says that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He is not getting rid of what they've learned in the Old Testament. In fact, he's showing what the Old Testament was always about. And in fact, he's the fulfillment of that. He's the one who embodies the law of God perfectly. And so the, the rest of the sermon, Jesus begins to correct the misconceptions of the Old Testament law that the Pharisees have perpetuated. He's correcting these assumptions and these practices um, that in order to show what the real uh, meaning of the law actually is. And so we want to continue to reflect on this as we think about what does it look like to develop and to embody the character of Jesus. And today we're talking about fidelity. That's what he's going to focus on in these two little parts we're going to read, about being a faithful person. And so I just want to highlight right off the bat, um, for some of you this uh, might trigger some painful feelings because we're going to talk about marriage and vows and divorce. And I know that for many that involves deep pain. And that involves uh, maybe a sense of betrayal, or maybe for some of you, a sense of failure. But likely for a lot of us, it brings up just tragic memories and uh, a, a sort of acknowledgement of brokenness in their families and in their lives. So I want to just say right up front that if that's you, then you need to know that there is good news for you in all this, that, um, that God uh, and his grace to us in Christ is able to um, forgive any sin that you have committed in these areas. And any wound that you have experienced around marriage and divorce, um, God is able to heal that. And if you've been alienated from relationships, God is able to reconcile those. And if you've lost relationships that can't be reconciled, um, God is able to turn that into joy. And so I want you to hear that up front as we read um, these verses. I know normally I read the verses first, but I wanted to kind of give us a little bit of context before we dive in. So turn with me to Matthew 5, 31, all the way to 37. This is Jesus. He says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're going to be talking about fidelity, about faithfulness and the character of Jesus. And so I want to begin by talking about communities of trust. Communities of trust. So um, as we reflect on this, I want you to just think about what it takes for communities to live together in harmony and joy. You know, networks of relationships, how do communities of people remain together and have deep intimacy and love in their relationship? And I think if you reflect on that for you know, a matter of time, you'll see that trust is at the very foundation of what makes that possible. Trust is what gives us confidence that others will act for the good of everyone else in the community and that they will act truthfully 
right? That's what engenders trust in relationships, and trust is what makes communities of intimacy and joy possible. And this is at the heart of what Jesus is talking about in both of the sections of his sermon that I just read. I'm going to look at them in reverse order. The first thing I want us to see is that Jesus talks about oaths and vows. Now, oaths and vows are not things that we think about a lot in our everyday life, but they pervade society. In fact, they're fundamental to our relationships and to society as a, as a whole. Oaths are when we swear that what we are saying is true. And we do that by invoking God and his judgment if we are lying, right? And so we, this has been part of the Western legal tradition that when you testify in court, you put your hand on a Bible and you swear before God that what you're about to say is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And the idea here is, in one sense, in a lot of cases, no one's going to know if you're lying. There's no way to determine if you're lying or not. And so you're saying, if I'm lying, God knows, and God will judge me for that. So you take an oath and invoke God's name, right? And a vow is a slightly different thing. A vow is more about a promise that you're going to do something. And so when an official takes office in our country, in many places, they say something like, I do solemnly swear that I will support the Constitution of the United States. I promise to uphold this thing. I'm going to live and abide by this statement, right, or this constitution. When you get married, you take vows, you make promises. I take you to be my wife or my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, right, so on and so forth. And all these conditions, I pledge to love you. That's what you are doing. You are taking that vow. Um, this is fundamental to contracts that all of us depend upon every day when we do commerce, right? When you sign your name, you are saying, according to these stipulations, I will act, right? And so um, vows and oaths are, are at the very heart of what holds societies and relationships together. They depend on these sorts of promises and on people being faithful to their oaths and to their promises. Now, a particular type of relationship is the second thing that Jesus addresses. He does it first in his sermon, but it's marriage. It's a particular type of relationship that is entered into by a promise, right? Marriage, um, in the Christian understanding, is not an arbitrary social or economic arrangement. It didn't just sort of evolve. It hasn't fundamentally changed throughout societies over time. It's not um, you know, the, the product of the patriarchy or something like that. Um, God designed marriage from the very beginning, and Jesus says this explicitly uh, later on in chapter 19 when he's asked more questions about divorce and remarriage. Um, he explicitly alludes to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where it says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a, a basic statement about an institution, a relationship that God made, he designed from the beginning, where where a man and a woman would join together and form a familial bond, right? And familial bonds are uh, are are significant. I mean, uh, think about the bond between a mother and a, and her child, right? No matter what happens in the course of that life, whether those children that child is alienated from the mother, or there's a death, or there's a separation for some reason, there is still a bond that exists. There's still a connection that will forever shape both parties. That's true um, of marriage as well. When two people are bonded together, for better or worse, that relationship will shape them for the rest of their life. Um, it, will, it will shape you because marriage is a lifelong companionship or a partnership forged by God 
as a covenantal union of one man and one woman for their lifetime, and it is entered into by taking a vow, by making a promise to be characterized by exclusivity and permanence and love. That, in short, is the biblical picture of marriage that Jesus is working out of as he's asked questions and as he's teaching on marriage, right? Um, when I do weddings, I perform weddings sometimes, a, a few occasions, uh, more recently than in the past, people ask me if they can write their own vows, their, make their own promise. And um, I'm fine with people maybe adding their own thoughts to their vows. That's, there's nothing wrong with that, and I can see how that'd be special. But sometimes it reflects a fundamental misunderstanding of what marriage is and what's going on. That, um, that when we gather at a wedding, that two people are getting up there in front of everybody and just expressing how much they love each other. And so that you know, people want to write their vows, and they say all sorts of really romantic things that maybe the two of them only really fully understand. It's, it's very sweet, but that is actually not what's going on in a wedding. When you are getting married, you are promising in front of everyone and God to be faithful to that person and to love them in the future. You're not just expressing how you feel about them in that moment because the relationship is forged by a promise, a commitment to love the other person. So big picture in these two sections of teaching, Jesus is speaking about the virtue of faithfulness, about being a faithful person. He is speaking about the sorts of people we need to be in relationship, people who commit to other people and faithfully love them as time goes by, people that tell the truth and follow through on what they say. And another way to say this is that he's, he's calling people and inviting people to live covenantally rather than contractually, right? So contracts are also arrangements of relationships where you, you know the idea is I give you this and I do this and I live in this certain way so that you give me these things. There's an exchange that's going on. Here's my end of the bargain. That's your end of the bargain. And as soon as you don't do exactly what you're supposed to do, I can sue you for breach of contract, right? The, a covenant, or excuse me, a contract is about an exchange of some sort. But a covenant is about love. There are still obligations. There are still duties in a covenant. It's not like, you know, you don't have to do anything because it's a covenant relationship. No, there are obligations. Um, but the commitment to the other person is not based strictly on whether or not they're performing those sorts of things. You don't just get to jump out of the relationship as soon as you see failure on the part of the other person. Now, that doesn't mean, I want to be clear on this, and I'll say more on this later, it does not mean that covenants cannot be broken, because they can. And sometimes, sadly, they must be. And that's not always a problem. Um, but they are fundamentally about love, about committing to the good of the other person. And friends, I want us to understand, I know that probably you're here today, you probably agree with this, but this needs to go deep down into us. We need to understand the Christian vision for not just marriage, but for all sorts of relationships where covenant is at the heart of them. Love and, and faithfulness are the sorts of things that build trust in relationships. And relationships formed around trust are what actually make possible things like intimacy and joy and even prosperous life. The, 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 the way that God has made us and the way that he has called us to live in relationship are for life. They are for the good of the world. Um, these aren't just arbitrary rules where God is mean and he wants to restrict us. He wants us to flourish. And these, um, th these things are at the heart of what makes relationships flourish. 
Covenants involve this committed love and faithfulness. It supplies the context for intimacy and new life and for growth and prosperity, right? So think about you know, a very common idea today that um, we don't need to get married. We love each other and we, we're going to partner with one another, but we don't need a piece of paper. Um, we don't want to do that. That's kind of formal. That's a dead institution, um, but we love each other and we're going to stick with one another. Well, if you always um, sort of live in this un, kind of not fully committed relationship with someone, then that will, that will hinder your ability to actually grow in intimacy and love with that person. It will shape you, right? If, if we're not confident that the other person is committed to us, then we're always going to be afraid that if they fully see who we are, they see everything about us, they see the ugliness, right? Then, um, then they're going to leave. And so we, we actually engage in that relationship, always performing, always sort of presenting the best of ourselves so that that other person will stick with us. But of course, that cannot build deep intimacy. And ultimately, that vision of who we are is going to get um, revealed for what, it, what who we truly are, and it's going to um, make the relationship even more fragile. So um, this idea of committing to love someone actually creates the possibility of real intimacy and joy in that, uh, in that relationship. And this is true not just of marriage. It's true of all sorts of relationships. It's true of friendships, uh, church membership, and many, many more. True love always involves commitment and faithfulness. Um, I'm reading this book by a guy named Christopher Watkins right now, and he says this about freedom and love. He says, to be free from attachment and constraint is to forget the possibility of ever knowing love. Love is not a restriction of freedom, but rather gives its meaning, gives it its meaning and orientation. Love always involves a willing enslavement, a form of self-dispossession or self-giving. It is the attachment which detaches from all else. And as such, that excludes the modern ideology of freedom from. In sum, biblical love and modern freedom from are mutually exclusive modes of being in the world. What he is saying there is that the, the way that we envision freedom today, the sort of freedom that we all um, highly value in the West, is the freedom from restrictions. I have no obligations on me. I have nothing forcing me from outside to be a certain way or to do a certain thing. I have no constraints. That is the happy life the world tells us. And this author is saying, along with Scripture, no, that actually is a recipe for a lack of love in your life. If you want love, if you want intimacy, if you want joy, you have to embrace the constraints of commitment. That's what fosters real love. So communities of trust and therefore love require fidelity. So now we need to look at what Jesus is saying uh, more, more clearly here. He talks about infidelity. He talks about the perversion of his law. So let's go back to these distortions that have been taught and how he corrects them. And again, I'm going to go in reverse order. First, let's look at the odes. In 33 through 37, I'm going to only read two verses again. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, and then he goes on and talks about other things they shouldn't swear on. What Jesus is doing here is talking about the third commandment, right? You remember that one? You shall not um, bear, uh, gosh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. All right. Yes. So uh, to take the name of the Lord your God is to take an oath. All right. Now, it, it obviously means more than that. We know uh, if you've taken our seminar, it means bearing God's name in all of life. But on a simple level, it's about taking an oath in court. And you're not supposed to do that in vain. And so the Pharisees 
knowing that it was a huge deal and a big problem to swear falsely on God's name, would take oaths on all sorts of other things, on heaven, on earth, on Jerusalem, on their head, I mean, all sorts of things. And this was sort of a way of trying to get people to believe that they were telling the truth, but kind of having an out so that they didn't actually have to tell the truth or they didn't actually have to follow through on what they were saying. These were not so clever ways of lying and breaking commitments. And Jesus calls this out and says, this is absolute nonsense. Don't do anything like that. Don't swear in any of those ways. Um, He is not saying that you shouldn't ever take an oath, but he's saying don't take those sorts of oaths because frankly, all of those oaths are still oaths on the name of God even if you're not saying it, because heaven is the throne of God, right? Jerusalem is the great city of God. So you're always invoking God. Whenever you speak, you are invoking God's judgment on what you say. Rather, he says, you should just say yes and mean yes, or you should just say no and mean no. Speak straightforwardly, tell the truth, and do the things that you say you're going to do, right? So that's opposed to the idea of speaking in crooked and deceptive and misleading and insincere ways. Secondly, um, he talks about divorce and, uh, and marriage. Now, in his day, um, there was a big debate about the Old Testament and what it required of people. So you hear um, in verse 31, he says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So here, Jesus is speaking about the seventh commandment and the way that the Pharisees had interpreted that. Deuteronomy 24 is a place in the law where God uh, um, gave Israel commands that if a man put his wife out, he was to give her a certificate of divorce. Now, the purpose for this was to protect women from unfaithful husbands. Men um, would often be unfaithful or they would get sick of their wife for some reason and they would just put her out and that left her in an incredibly vulnerable position because she could not remarry because everyone knew that that was the wife of so-and-so. So he put her out, she had nowhere to be and she had no way to get protection by getting remarried. And so he sa- God said, you have to give women like that a, a certificate so that they are freed to uh, remarry that everyone knows they they haven't committed adultery and that she's um, okay to go and seek protection by becoming remarried. Now, in Jesus's day, they had perverted this. And some had taken this passage on this certificate as a justification for getting rid of a wife for any reason whatsoever. She displeased the man man in some way. So he just gets rid of her, gives her a divorce, and then moves on. And what Jesus is saying is this facilitates adultery. You're sending her off when there's nothing that's broken that covenant. You just didn't like what she did. And so you're kind of pushing her into adultery and then you're probably going on to commit adultery as well. This is perverse, he says. And now others in his day had said, no, divorce is legitimate in the case of sexual immorality. And Jesus agrees with that. He's saying that's actually right. There is a type of sin that does break the marriage bond. And in that case, the the offended party is free to remarry. And it's very important that you hear that, especially um, in a day where Christians have spoken in different ways about this. Um, As a Presbyterian church, we have a a confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith. There's a whole section on marriage and divorce, and it lays out what I believe is very clearly the biblical position uh, in uh, chapter 24. So you can go look at that and read that. Um, bottom line, in cases of adultery, sexual immorality, abandonment, even types of abuse, um, and, and even predatory behavior, all of those sorts of things, those are justified grounds in scripture for uh, a man or a woman to divorce their spouse. But beyond that, Jesus says, 
Um, God made marriage as a permanent relationship, and you should stick with that. You shouldn't just um, divorce because of irreconcilable differences. So in both of these cases, what um, the Pharisees had done is perverted God's law to get around the true aim of what the law was all about, which is to be a faithful person. God's law is aimed at us becoming faithful and truthful people who can live in covenantal relationships and love. And the Pharisees had tried to justify their lies and their infidelity by um, sort of reinterpreting these laws. And, you know, honestly, I can understand why they tried to do that because uh, it's very hard to be faithful and truthful. We can understand this, right? Because um, we're not faithful either. We bail on people all the time, don't we? We, we bail when things get hard uh, or when there's conflict or disagreement or we're anxious or somebody does something we don't like or they have an opinion we don't like. We, we bail for all sorts of reasons. We bail on social commitments just because we, we RSVP'd yes and then we just don't feel like it at the time, right? Um, we bail because we feel anxious and we drop out. We bail because um, we committed in a flippant way without really thinking about what we had going on then. And, uh, and so then we didn't really take it seriously, and so we bail. We bail um, because we want to please people in the moment, and we say we can do this or be there, and then um, we really couldn't, and we never could have, but we didn't want them to be upset in the moment. I mean, we are unfaithful in so many ways. These are kind of small ways. And so some of us, not wanting to be unfaithful, we decided, I'm never committing to anything, right? I'll just see what I can do in the moment. I'll, I'll just take what comes. And that, that's also a form of not being faithful, like refusing to commit to other people and other things. Commitments freak us out. Uh, they limit us. And we don't like those limits, right? Uh, at, like I said earlier, as modern people, limits fundamentally seem to be oppressive because we know they might hinder what, uh, what we want to do in a certain moment that we think is going to be important for our happiness. And so if I put commitments around my life, especially big commitments, committing to a person, a place, a community, that is scary. Because what's going to happen down the road? I don't know. And now I have to work through that. I'm not committing to that. I'll just kind of take what I can and never fully enter in, right? Commitments are seen as fundamentally inherently opposed to freedom. But to promise to commit to another person and to other people is to open yourself up to suffering. That's really at the heart of it. To, to make commitments to other people is to be open to the possibility of suffering. Because I've got to follow through, even if that's hard and I miss out in some way. And so at bottom, we don't want to commit because of our own greed and our own self-interest. We put our own interests, our own convenience, our own goals, our own desires, many other things ahead of committing to the good of other people. And so just think about what that's like for others when we fail to be faithful to them or fail to commit to them. Think about how it feels when people break their oaths uh, or they're unfaithful to you, right? There, there are wounds that come there that go deep, that communicate to us that we aren't loved. Um, it breaks trust in relationships, and we, we live our lives knowing we can't count on one another. It fragments communities where there's not really anywhere we fully belong. Um, and so we, we know we're kind of all alone in this life. And we have this idea that I can't count on other people, other people can't count on me, and that's just how it is. I'm alone. I mean, there's, there's a reason why there's an epidemic of loneliness in our country right now. And it's directly related to the fact that we see commitment as fundamentally violating self-fulfillment. So Jesus invites us into a, a new way, and that's faithfulness. This is the final point. 
Jesus invites us into a more excellent and beautiful way. He invites us to become true people and faithful people. And he does this because Jesus is, in fact, the true and faithful one. He is the God who took on flesh for us and for our salvation. And he invites us to grow into his likeness and to his character, right? And so to see that, I want to zoom out for a second and just remember the big story of God together. Because we need to see that this tension between truthfulness and fidelity on the one hand and suffering on the other through our commitments is at the heart of the story of God's work in the world. I mean, go all the way back to creation. God made us to live with him in a covenant relationship, a relationship characterized by love where both parties had obligations to one another and um, there was trust and intimacy and uh, they were to live and to prosper in harmony together. And immediately in the story, um, humanity is unfaithful, turning from God, uh, running from our commitments to obey him. And so this brings corruption, it brings death, it brings alienation, violence, to the world, right? I mean, you go just go a few stories in. You've got Lamech killing someone and bragging about it. You've got um, oppression, un- unheard of violence in Noah's day. You've got the tower. About it's just you know all sorts of hostility between parties. There's no sense of community in humanity anymore. And so um, God promises to redeem the world, and He starts this by um, binding Himself to a man and to that man's offspring. Right? This is the story of Abraham. God takes an oath. He says, I tell the, this, I'm telling the truth what I'm going to do for you, Abraham. And then he makes a promise. I'm going to make you great. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you this land. Your descendants are going to uh, be, be as numerous as the stars. And I'm going to be your God. And I'm going to be with you. And so he binds himself to this sinner and to a whole group of sinful people. And as the story um, goes along, we see that God weds Israel. He uses the imagery of of a wedding. He is the faithful groom, and Israel is this bride. And time and time again, we see Israel is unfaithful. They they go worship other gods. They don't obey the law. They're filled with violence and oppression, just like the rest of the world. And yet God is faithful to his spouse. He comes into the world in the person of Jesus. And he does this because at the heart of the Old Testament is this tension between God's promise to love Israel us and to love his people and the knowledge that there is suffering that comes with that. When he made the promise to Abraham, he takes this uh, this cow and they, they cut it in half and they laid the pieces on the ground. Abraham did this. And Abraham um, falls into this deep sleep because he was, he was going to make this covenant ceremony. This is a, a common process in that day where you take an animal, you divide it, and the two parties walk in the middle of the animal. And what they're doing is saying, I'm binding myself to you, and if I violate this covenant, let me be torn in half. And when Abraham falls asleep, he sees this uh, smoking pot and fire pass between the animals. And this is God's way of saying to Abraham, I'm the one that's going through the animal. I'm making this promise to you, and if this covenant is broken, I'm the one that's going to get torn in half. And that's exactly why Jesus came into the world. Jesus lives as the fulfillment of God's promise, as this evidence, this embodiment of the faithfulness of God. And Jesus lives this completely faithful life. He tells the truth to an unfaithful bride, and yet they kill him. He goes to the cross as the faithful one, and the unfaithful people of God put him up to the Romans. The Romans crucify him, and he is killed. He is torn in half for us. He suffers. That's what he gets for binding himself to us. God made promises to us and bound himself to us. 
which he knew meant he would suffer for us. And he kept his word. That's what Jesus came to do. He died to bring us forgiveness from our unfaithfulness. He died to cleanse us from the shameful corruption our unfaithfulness brings into our bodies and into our lives, into our systems of relationships. He came to liberate us from all the fears and all the greed that lead us to be unfaithful people. And he shows us that we can trust Jesus. He's the only one that we can trust, right? We can trust God and we can trust his son because he was willing to go and suffer to the point of death for us. That's what restores us and makes it possible for us to be people who live faithfully. Psalm 100, um, one of my favorite psalms, the very last verse, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. What a great statement about who God is and Jesus embodies this. The faithfulness of God that extends to all generations, to you and to your children and to your children after you. God is a faithful and he will always be faithful to his promises. And so if you have been betrayed, if you have been abandoned, if you have been let down, Jesus will never let you down. He will never forsake you. He will never leave you. And if you have been unfaithful, God is faithful to his people throughout the story of the Bible, even when they are unfaithful. And you can count on him rescuing you and showing you grace and restoring you so that you will become a person who can be faithful to the commitments that you make. God sees you and he fully knows all the ugliness in your life and yet he embraces you and he sends his spirit to live in you, to renew you and to make you whole again so you can live in trust with other people. That's the power that we have in the gospel, that God is faithful to us. We don't have to fear missing out. Yes, we are gonna have to suffer if we commit ourselves to other people. That's gonna bring suffering. They will hurt us deeply sometimes and betray us and yet, The promises of God tell us that God will give us all joy. We can commit ourselves to others. We can follow through. We can live within limits and suffer through hardships that that bring us to terrible places because we know that God will raise us up and he will bless us. And so the beautiful result of that is that we increasingly become dependable, faithful, truthful people. And I think all of us, deep down, that's the sort of people that we want to be, right? Um, Someone that other people can count on Someone that other people trust, right? When, when you say something, people know that you mean it, that you're not just saying it because they want to hear it. Um, they aren't left guessing what you really mean. You do what you say you're going to do, and so people can depend on you and count on that. You stick with your commitments. And this builds communities of trust around you, right? Uh, where there's protection and provision and belonging. And so um, as you just think about what it's like to be that sort of person, uh, just imagine and I'm sure you know some people like this who, who have been you know, married for like 70 years. And you hear the stories of all the things they've been through and all the ways they've failed each other. But you see just the sturdiness of that relationship, how that trickles down generationally um, to those around them. And the power in that. And, and think, man, that, that's, that's who I want to be. I want to see that sort of legacy coming behind me and around me because um, God is making me trustworthy. And you can start today. So... How do you do that? Well, Jesus gives us some very clear direction here. He says, one thing you can do is just say yes when you mean yes and no when you mean no, right? And that's really hard for some of us. I know we're like really sweet and we love, we don't want people to be mad at us. And, you know, sometimes we don't want to disappoint people or, you know, that's so hard. I know, but 
we got to become the sort of people that can have the courage to just speak straightforwardly and directly. You know, um, don't manipulate people with what you're saying. Don't people please, right? I, I know some college friends that I dearly love that their marriage fell apart because they never were honest with one another. They were always afraid to disappoint the other person. They were always afraid to really say how they're feeling and eventually just led to this deep distance. And then one of them did kind of a horrible betraying thing and it just fell apart. And as they reflected on it, they're like, man, I just, I just didn't know how to talk honestly. And it's so, it's so sad. Um, and so think about what does it look like to become a person who just says what they think and what they feel. They're straightforward about that. Right. And maybe you say, I don't know what that is. Okay. Say that, you know, I don't know what I think. I don't know how I'm feeling. Uh, and then process it with, with that person. So that's one thing, speak straightforwardly. But uh, another thing, in normal social commitments, um, just don't, don't bail. Follow through. That's hard. That means you're going to miss out on things. You know, I know that. Like, if you commit to one thing, that means something else might come up and you might not get to do that. So embrace the fact that by committing to other people and to the things that we say we're going to do, you're going to miss out on fun things. And it won't be the end of the world. And in fact, there's a deeper joy that can come from sticking with those things and who you are becoming. Um, and then obviously the big commitments, thirdly. The big commitments, things like marriage and church membership and, and other forms of deeply committed friendships. Um, embrace the limits of commitment. You're going to miss out there as well. You're going to have to face conflict. And um, when that comes, get help. It's okay to get help. No, none of us can be faithful without help from other people. And usually both parties or all the parties have some part they're playing in the way that the relationship is experiencing tension. So um, recognize your own part in that. Trust that fidelity brings a greater reward. Sally and I have many friends that we feel like we can count on like this. You know, I said earlier, we have one friend that's kind of all over the place, wonderful to be around, can't count on them. Well, we have many friends, some of you are here uh, and, and, and elsewhere that are deeply beautiful people that we know we can count on, that when they tell us something, they are being honest with us and we can, we can go to the bank on that. And it's a beautiful thing. And that is uh, what God is by his spirit making us to be. And that's uh, displayed in this meal that we're about to partake of where we see the faithfulness of God, right? Um, the promises of God were fulfilled in Jesus. We see that he gave his life to be faithful to God's promises. He gave his life his body was broken. His life was poured out. We see that in the wine, the blood, so that God's promises that he would be our God, even though we were unfaithful, could be true. And so as we come to this table, uh, I want you to come in faith, repenting of your unfaithfulness, but tasting the faithfulness of God, drinking it in, taking it deep down into you and knowing that he will never leave you. Many people will. People will hurt you deeply, even people that you thought loved you, but God will never forsake you. He will never leave you. That's what this meal is all about. Let's, let's pray together. Father, you are the faithful one. We rejoice that you gave us your son, that he gave his life up on that cross, that he suffered so that this commitment you made to be with us would not be broken. And so uh, as we eat this bread and drink this wine, we pray that we would taste those promises and we'd be transformed by your spirit and we would become a faithful people. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.